Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, November the 9th, the If You Give a Mouse a Handout edition. I'm Gabriel Roth, an editor at Slate, and I'm the father of Eliza, who's six years old, and Leo, who's three. And I am Carvel Wallace, a writer and editor and podcaster in Oakland, California. And I'm the father of Georgia, who is 12, and Ezra, who is 14. I'm Catherine Goldstein. I'm a contributing editor at Slate and the mom to Asher, who is two. Rebecca Lavoie will be back with us next week. Today on our show, we're going to be talking to Lauren Smith Brody about going back to work after having a baby, what you should know. Uh, And we've got a question from a listener who's wondering whether to go through another round of IVF treatment. Plus, as always, we will have triumphs. We'll have fails. We'll have recommendations. On Slate Plus, Lauren Smith Brody will be back to share a parenting fail of her own. Time for triumphs and fails. Catherine, would you like to go first? Sure. Today, I have a triumph. So um, my son uh, turned two in July, and we recently decided it was time to do potty training. And obviously, this is a big step in every young child's life. And uh, we decided to pull the Band-Aid off. And we were going to, I read like a three-day potty training book. And then we decided, um, we picked a weekend and we decided we're just going to do it. So basically what the book says is you have to spend all day inside with your toddler wearing underwear and just paying attention to them to make sure that if they have to go potty, you get them to the potty. So I'm really dreading this. It's like we the weekend we picked is like this beautiful fall weekend. It's like great for being outside and doing stuff. And I'm thinking um, basically I'm going to be trapped in the house all weekend uh, with a toddler that's like peeing everywhere. So I was like, OK, well, this is part of being a parent. You just grit your teeth and get through it. So uh, the weekend comes around, and one of the big tenets of the book is that you really have to pay attention to your kid. You can't be on your phone. You can't be multitasking. You can't be doing other things. So we, uh, the weekend comes, and it turns out that we have a really amazing time, my son and I. And my husband and I are trading off duties, but basically what I realized is you spend so much time when you have a toddler managing them, being like, okay, time to get your shoes on. Okay, uh, which jacket do you want to wear? Can you do this while I do that? So can you be distracted? And what I realized during this weekend of completely not looking at my phone and completely not trying to multitask is that actually like, I was just able to be completely present with my two-year-old and we tried some activities we never tried like we cooked together for the first time and he loved it and so what I realized was if I just put my phone away and actually could be there with him it was actually one of the best weekends we'd have in a really long time and even though I was dreading it the forcing me to really be with him and be sort of focused on him in a way that is hard to do as a modern parent was an incredibly satisfying experience that's great And you're done with diapers. And now we're done with diapers. Ta-da! That is a great day. (laughs)
Yeah, <laughs> congratulations. Thank so, you. is this gonna uh, is this gonna change the way that you parent going forward, or are you just gonna? It actually, yeah, it actually made me think a lot more about the use of smartphones. And I don't think I'm so addicted because he's the age where if you bring out your phone, he wants to look at it. So we're not on our phones all the time. But it really made me realize like how distracting that can be when you and how addicted you can be to just like, oh, I'll just check and see if I have any new emails. It's kind of like, why? You know, I think that it's easy to get in the habit of feeling like you're constantly having to look at your phone, even if you're not. And I think it's really important to try to push ourselves to say, like, I'm really not going to look at my phone while I'm spending time with my kid. Um, and I think it it definitely helped me. And again, you know, since this has happened, it's not like every single moment I'm in this like days of like perfect, uh, you know, harmony of paying attention to my toddler. But it just <laughs> reminded me that there are times when it shouldn't just be like 10 minutes, I'm going to read you a book, but like actually try to not fit every single thing that I'm trying to do in and really just focus on what, where he is and what he wants to do. That's great. Carvel, what have you got? Yeah, my both my kids are potty trained, so we have di- a different set of problems. <laughs> Congratulations. But, uh, yeah, it took uh, – the daughter was actually hard. The son weirdly just – taught himself like we had hardwood floors this is a story i'll probably tell at some of the point but short stories we had hardwood floors and then uh so we let him go diaperless for like three hours he pooped on the floor and after that never wanted to do it again and then just went directly to the potty so um but uh, my daughter was a whole big production but anyway the point is that in terms of triumphs and fails my son now 14 um i would say this is a triumph because he a few months ago i got him a computer or rather i gave him my old computer when i bought a new one and he was a little bit snotty about it like this is you're gonna give me your old computer dad like whatever but then you know like once he got into it he was excited about it this was after he he smashed his computer monitor and then he was no this is this This is is a continuation of the computer smashing so Uh, he had this he had this new he had this newish a laptop that I had uh, handed down to him and had wiped off and was all perfect. And he, once he got over his like initial disdain at having a previously used equipment, he got really into it and it became an important part of his life. And then a couple of months ago, one day he was watching YouTube videos, I suppose, with the laptop on the arm of the couch in his room and he had his headphones in and he got up with the headphones still in and then... He yanked the thing off of the couch and it smashed LCD screen about 33% destroyed. So he came to us initially and said, this is really bad. You know, this is, yeah, he said, it's going to be really expensive. I was like, it sure is. And with, <laughs> he was kind of hinting like, are you going to help me out with this? And we were like, no. And uh, so months have gone by and he's like made do because he does have an external monitor. So it's really not even that big of a deal. Um, but he also used some of his Christmas money to buy a PlayStation. And I was like, I mean, you could sell your PlayStation and then you'll have money. And he was like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I was like, all right. So anyway, so last night I was out actually working late and I got this phone call from him because I had gone on this big, long trip to my hometown and it was all emotional and I hadn't seen him in a few days. And I called him. I mean, he called me and we made small talk for like 10 minutes. Dad, how was your trip back? Wow, that must have been really intense. Wow, did you see your old friends? Man, life is so interesting, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And I thought we were just catching up. And then at the very end of the phone call, he hits me with, so, Dad, I've been thinking about my computer. <laughs> he's like, he's like, I've done some research, and I know where I can get it repaired, and I thought about what you said about going to a reputable place, and I have half the money saved up, and I was wondering if you if you could stake me the other half, is the phrase he used. And I was like, stake you the other half? <laughs> like, yeah, can you, can you, you know, and I was like, I don't think that counts as a stake, because there's, no, there's no return on the investment for me. I'm like, I already paid for the computer. He was like, no, but I already have half of it saved up. I was hoping you could match me, like it was like matching donations. <laughs> <laughs> this is a Bay Area child. <laughs> and I was like and I was like I was like, did you talk to your mom about it? He said, Well, I mean I talked to her and you know, she's switching jobs right now and she whatever I was like, Okay, but did you talk to her about it? He was like, Yeah, she said no. <laughs> 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 and so he was coming to me and I said, yeah, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. He was like, dad, you, you're, you're like, you're making a lot of money now. You're famous. Your name is everywhere. I was like, just cause my name is everywhere. Isn't making any money. He's like, but you, you just bought a car. Like you, you know, I know you're doing well, dad. And I was like, that's true. 
but I'm also not going to give you the money for a computer because it's kind of your thing. And he was like, yeah, but, but, you know, and we kind of went back and forth and I just said, yeah, I mean, this is, this is one of the things that happens. He was like, but it was a mistake. It could have happened to anyone. And I was like, that's right. And it happened to you. And so now it's on you. I was like, you have things you can sell. If you don't want to sell them, you have an allowance that you get and you're going to have to save up that allowance. He was like, but that's going to be like several months until, and I was like, that's right. That's what that is. And he was like, okay, dad. And then, uh, he didn't like sulk or anything. He just got off the phone with me. And then this morning when I saw him on the way to school, he said, uh, have you, have you considered my offer? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, no, I, I'm already done with it. I'm not giving you the money. He was like, okay, dad. And uh, I felt it was a triumph because there was a small part of me that wanted to just be like, oh, here you go, son. Like, go out into the world and do your thing. But I was like, that's, what kind of lesson is that? I mean, deal with your, you figure it out and get the money, do something, sell something, save your allowance, whatever. And, uh, and then this morning when he, uh, the other triumph is that, you know, he really seemed to understand the thinking behind it. He didn't take it personally. He was disappointed, but he wasn't, like, mad at me. He seemed to really get it. So I felt like, okay, this kid's on the right track in terms of understanding how money works. You should suggest to him that he set up a GoFundMe page. And then <laughs> we can put it on our Mom and Dad are Fighting Facebook no. page. No, no, no. And no. then no one no. should give any money to it. <laughs> no, this child I feel has like, tried to piggyback off my fame too much. I feel like we can count on our <laughs> listeners not to give any money for us for his new computer. But it, it would be educational for him to see the page sitting there at zero dollars. Oh, that's too much pain. Might be useful. Carvel, I love this story because I love that you're sticking to your guns um, because, like you said, yeah. in some ways it would be easier to be like, okay, fine, here's the $200. You save $200. But I love yeah. that you are really sticking to it after months and months. And also um, – you're also really helping him hone his negotiation skills. I think like after he's oh trying God. everything on you. So, you know, it's going to help him be a successful businessman in the future because he's had all these no's and re repositionings here. His negotiation game has been has been at top level since he was like five. I mean, everything <laughs> with him is like a five day negotiation. It's it's really quite frustrating. But in the long run, he has a lot of qualities that are annoying when you're his parent, but, you know, will serve him well when he's in the world. So I also have a uh, triumph that's a follow-up on a, on a previous uh, story that I've told on this show. The single thing that I've said on Mom and Dad Are Fighting that has gotten the biggest response from people is about a month ago when I, I said that Eliza will no longer let me read books to her before going to bed. Literally everyone wants to jump on our Facebook page and tell me that I can't allow her to end the tradition of bedtime reading. Like, no, Gabe, you got to find a more advanced book. You got to find something she really wants you to read to her. You got to make her do it. You got whatever. Um in the end, she just sort of came back to it. Like we found a book that she had read already, but she thought I would like, uh, and I sort of feigned enthusiasm for it. Like I, I don't actually think it's a particularly good book, but I can identify the things that she wants me to like about it, and I can enthuse about those things and sort of talk about how excited I am to read another chapter of this book. It's uh, Escape from Mr. Lemoncello's Library. Uh, and – then I, we've been reading a chapter every night. She won't let me do it for more than like two chapters, which is about 10 minutes of reading aloud time. But we get to have that nice, you know, physical, cuddly time together. And and um, we have a whole bit where I try to put my arm around her and she and I want her to rest her head on my shoulder. And, and she resists doing that and physically takes my arm and uncurls it from around her neck and then like pushes me away and is like, I hate your arm. Get your arm away from me. And, and, and we knew a whole bit about that. Um, and it's lovely. And I'm, I'm glad that I persisted on that. And so thank Thank you to everybody who has uh, encouraged me not to let that go. So it's my triumph, but in a way it's your triumph as well. But really it's my triumph. <laughs> We're really winning at parenting today. We are, yeah. Three three triumphs, which is bad in a way because this show should yeah. be about failure more than about triumph, really. Um, but whatever. Maybe we're just awesome parents and you should all be like us. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Okay, before we move on, let's do the business. If you have a question that you would like us to tackle on the air, leave us a message at our phone number, which is four two four two five five seven eight three three, or send us an email at momanddad at slate dot com. Be sure to check out Slate's Represent, hosted by past guest and friend of the show, Aisha Harris. You might remember her coming on to help us answer a question about American Girl Dolls a few episodes back. Her podcast, Represent, is about representation in media and culture today. She has recently done interviews with New Orleans bounce queen Big Frida and with actress Gabore Sidibe. Coming soon, she's got an episode about the controversial Simpsons character Apu and the complicated relationship that Indian viewers of that show have to the owner of the Quickie Mart. So check out that show at slate.com slash represent or wherever you get your podcasts. In Slate Plus today, we'll be hearing from Lauren Smith Brody, who's going to be our guest in just a minute. Uh, She'll be sharing a fail. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus, a great way to help support this show. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing Mom and Dad are Fighting and all your other favorite Slate podcasts. And of course, in return, you will get these extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows, along with a ton of other benefits. If you would like to support Mom and Dad are Fighting and all the other work that Slate does, go to slate.com slash momanddadplus and join Slate Plus today. Joining us now is Lauren Smith Brody. She's the author of The Fifth Trimester, The Working Mom's Guide to Style, Sanity, and Big Success After Baby. Lauren, thanks for being with us. I would like to know, first of all, when did you have your first baby and what kind of work were you doing at that time? 30 trimesters ago. (laughs) (laughs) My oldest son is uh, nine years old, and I was at the time a um, a deputy editor at uh, Glamour Magazine at Condé Nast. Um, stayed. I had been there for, at that point for several years and um, stayed a couple of years after he was born, too. And how much time did you take off? And, and then what was it like when you went back after that? I actually had 12 weeks. Um, it was a cobbled together 12 weeks, some disability, some vacation time, a little bit unpaid, which was something that, you know, we were able to save up for and do, which is, you know, um, a privilege, frankly. Um, and I knew I had it good. And yet it still was not enough. It was a disaster. <laughs> it was an absolute disaster. <laughs> I um, I always like to say, so my parents told me when I was five years old that I should never bother lying. This is a good parenting tip because uh, everything was always written on my face. And so I knew coming back to work, I couldn't hide the fact that I did not feel like myself. I was used to being very in control. I was a planner. There's nothing about having a new baby that lets you plan your days down to the minute the way I was used to doing it. Um, and yet I muddled through because I had to. And I was in a position of... Um, real authority. And, you know, the people who were underneath me were looking up to me to do the right thing. And I kind of realized pretty quickly that the right thing was being open and honest and transparent about my motherhood in the workplace. This was obviously a pretty easy thing to do when you're working with largely women. Um, And yet still, it was a challenge. What surprised you most about being back there? Oh, gosh, the sleep deprivation. That is the thing that just, no matter how well you recover physically, if you aren't sleeping yet, you're not feeling like yourself. Your your fuse is really short. You are you're just barely keeping it together. I interviewed um uh so the approach that I take for from my research for my book and for my business is I really thought of this not as a book for, you know, mothering a baby, but really as a book for caring for yourself. So when I talked to sleep experts, I didn't talk to baby sleep experts because far be it from me to tell you how to sleep train your baby. That's up to you. Um, but I talked to experts who could clue me in about how do you work through sleep deprivation. And so the woman I spoke to is actually a um, she she does some research with families, but she also does some research on the military's use of sleep deprivation as a weapon of war. I was like her. She's going to be a good expert. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. So she, um, so you know, she actually said to me, she said, you know, when mothers are coming back to work before they're sleeping through the night, they are showing up at 9 a.m. if they have not had two full REM cycles in a row, as impaired as if they are drunk. 
And so that's what I felt like. And that's what millions and millions of new parents feel like. So what can they do? So what can they do? Well, the sleep is actually, in some ways, there are tips for it. There's all kinds of things. Like you can buy a um, a red light, like would be used in an, in an old photography studio, and you can install that in the middle of the night, and that doesn't trigger your melatonin to change levels in the middle of the night if you wake up with the baby. There are tricks like that. The best probably is that you can game your day to um, – have something that requires adrenaline sort of counterintuitively during that post-lunch slump when you would get tired. You will get adrenaline if you have to give a presentation, if you have to get on a call, you have to kind of be on. That helps. Um, But more than that, you can, as I said, be transparent and honest in the workplace, especially if you're not at a point where you are necessarily feeling incredibly ambitious and like you can lean in as much as you want to and change those policies in this exact moment. The one thing you can do is be open about it and still get your job done. And that is going to actually shift culture. One new working parent at a time. I really believe it. Um, you can ask for what you need. You can make a case for how what you need as a parent in terms of flexibility is ultimately better for your company. There are a lot of resources out there now to help you make that case with numbers. Um, you can really uh, – there's, there's something about becoming a new parent that helps kind of set your priorities straight and you really want to find meaning in your work. And if you can show that, that – these sort of flexible arrangements will help with that. It's it's a good case. So, Lauren, um, you mentioned that you took 12 weeks of maternity leave. And um, that's sort of thrown around as like, oh, that's a, sort of a standard. <laughs> but a lot of people don't know that's actually not based on science no. or biology or like this is what's good for babies or this is what's good for moms. It's basically like a government number that was decided in the 90s that, you know, FMLA was 12 weeks long. Right. So in your book, you actually did a lot of research in talking to new moms about when they felt ready to go back to work because there's evidence that going back to work too soon can be really difficult. And Mm -hmm. there's evidence that staying out of the workforce too long can also be really difficult. Like, tell us a little bit about what you found in your research. Yeah, I was actually, so I was pretty delighted. So I interviewed, delighted with what what my surveying showed. So I interviewed and I surveyed a total of about 800 working moms, new moms, who told me that on average, and these were everyone from, you know, from CEO level executives to, you know, hourly wage workers who are really cobbling together a living to make this work. And they told me that on average, they were feeling physically better, which is not to say back in their old jeans, but, you know, just just comfortable in their own skin by about the 5.5 month mark after baby was born. They were feeling emotionally better at almost six months. And that lines up perfectly with what we see in the research. So at six months, especially, this is actually based on paid leave. If you have six months of paid leave, your chances of having a postpartum mood mood disorder dramatically decrease. Because you are more likely to get one if you are more stressed out at work and coming back too early. Um, additionally, and this is the case that you know a lot of people like to kind of latch on to, so to speak, latch on. Um, you know, babies are more likely to be healthier if you've had six months of paid leave because. They're more likely to get vaccinated. They're more likely to get to their appointments. If you are just coming back to work and you are already feeling stressed out about having been away, it's really hard to take time to take your baby to the doctor for a well visit, especially. Well, that sounds great. What do we do about that? Let's just fix it. (laughs) So, I mean, clearly, clearly there are private companies that are doing an amazing job trying. And some of them are succeeding. You know, I think the ones that are doing the best job really have parity between what they offer to men and offer to women. They offer them to parents in general. Um, But I think it's equally important to think beyond just parenthood. So, you know, a pregnancy is the most visible personal life need in the workplace, but you want to be the kind of workplace that actually offers benefits that tend to whatever is important in someone's personal life that is as important to them as a baby is to a new parent. And if you do that, they will bring their best work to you. Now, this is rare, though. You know, only I think something like 25 percent of American mothers go back to work before before two weeks postpartum. That's I, I mean, I think of where I was. And like I said, I was in a pretty privileged position. I was sitting on my blue couch, which is now so milk stained it has been it has been vacated from the apartment. <laughs> but I was sitting on that couch crying, having having some real postpartum emotional distress. And yet I realized doing my interviewing as I was talking to waitresses who were literally lining their bras with diapers to catch the milk that would fall when they would hear a baby cry in the restaurant. I had it pretty easy. They were back on their feet doing hard work. This is this is the more likely reality for most for most American parents, and we have to fix it. One of the things that I noticed when the my 
I was a stay-at-home dad for the first seven years of the kids being at uh, being, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and uh, the one thing I noticed with their mom when she went back to work was um, this incredible feeling that she could never do enough anywhere, right? <laughs> that she couldn't be enough at home because yeah. she had to leave or be on a work call or what have you, but she couldn't do enough at work because, and it was like, it was, um, I, 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 it was, it just seemed so incredibly difficult for her to feel like she could do enough. And of course, I would always say, you're doing enough. You're doing, you know, it's great. The kids are happy. Everything's happy. But, um, I could see that it was, she felt pulled in every direction and not a hundred percent in any direction. And I noticed that when we talked to other parents, it seemed that every mother I talked to had some sense of that. I guess I, I, my question is two parts. Like, what did, did you notice that when you talked to people in, what do you what do you say to moms about that? Yeah, I think you know we are living in a time of just an absolute crisis of expectations. You know, it is it, it's sort of the the double edged sword of having been raised to believe that you know we should be able to achieve anything we want. Well, we take a lot of that professional achievement and we bring it right home to maternity leave. Um, you know, in the equation you just described, your your wife was really fortunate that you were home, and yet she still felt that way. Um, there are a lot of patterns that are set up by um, by different uh, parental leaves. So if mom is home, you know, for say, say she does get a full FMLA, which is only, I think, only 56% of women even qualify for a full 12 weeks. Say she's home and able to afford to take it. Dad typically takes more like two weeks. And so even in the most progressive couples, you know, where dad wants to participate completely or do 50-50 or even more, there are all these patterns set up. And mom is home on leave, and so she's learning all these skills. So there's a lot of – there are a lot of experts I talked to and a lot of women I talked to who learned that they had to save, you know, some discrete duties for – their partners, you know, to really be the experts in, to not interfere, to trust their partner. And that helps. But, you know, really what we need is we need we need a federal policy that offers equal leave to everyone. And then we need men to take it. Well, that actually leads into my very next question, which is... Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, because, um, because I, I think that a lot, it seems from what I observe with my wife and then her, our friends... That it's all well and good to say we should be able to advocate for this and we want to do that, but there's a a, a, a persistent fear that you lose ground or standing in the workplace and that you're not protected and that even if your supervisor or supervisor supervisor says, yeah, that's good, sure, um, that that may come back to bite you two or three years down the road when it's time to look at uh, promotions, et cetera. So I guess people seem to want federal protection. And I wonder what are the moves toward that on kind of a national scale, if any? Well, I'm thrilled with what's happening in New York. I mean, I think, you know, as with anything, we see it happen at the state level and it becomes sort of the proving ground. There was there was a lot. Um, there were statistics that I pulled out of California, which has had, you know, paid leave, not enough, but some paid leave to look at to see the results. And 91 percent of the companies polled said that their um, their bottom line has not decreased at all. Um, or has improved. So, you know, you can actually put numbers on making this okay. And obviously, you know, dollars, dollars talk. Um, there are there are a lot of companies that are really trying their best and that really want to have these policies on paper. But what they need to do, and I truly believe this, and this is this is the genesis of of the book and of this term, the fifth trimester, is it's not just about the policies on paper. It's about what's there for people when they come back. That is really the key to retention. You have to retain these new parents by I think in a perfect world, you know, you look at what a company like um, there's a company called Vodafone that is a communications company that has offices all over the world, and they actually started a policy based on research that was done for them by um, KPMG to allow parents to come back and work a part-time schedule at full pay. So it was like a you know three-fifths schedule, but still getting your full paycheck for I think it was for either three or six months, and it dramatically improved retention. It dramatically boosted the bottom line. I think that the numbers when they ran them for, you know, all private companies was all private companies would save $19 billion a year if they did this. Um, That's the kind of support people need. Um, Okay, so in New York, um, the the New York paid family leave um, is has passed and is happening. It's the rollout begins in January. So it's little by little, but it is essentially almost exactly the same plan that has been pitched again and again and again. Um, it's called the Family Act and has never passed nationally, but I think that New York State will end up being a proving ground for it. And it is 12 weeks um, of 
partially paid leave that anyone is allowed to take. And it is, it's uh, paid for by a very tiny contribution that all workers make to their paycheck. So it's actually, it's a ramped up program that won't be fully in place until 2021. But starting this January 1st, so this is applicable for parents who are expecting a child in the new year, um, you receive, I believe it is eight weeks at 50% of your pay up to a certain cap. Um, So, Lauren, you recently wrote a piece in Slate about mom guilt, which I think is a universal experience, but particularly (laughs) acute for working mothers. Um, And we often think of guilt as a personal thing, like Mm -hmm. it's just really about my my life and what I'm going through. But you found in your research that there's actually a lot of societal reasons that moms feel so guilty all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you tell us a little more about that? Absolutely. So guilt, just like if you were to define guilt for a small child, you would say that it is about having done something wrong. And that is really, I think, the first step to understanding that this is this is actually like, of course, you didn't do anything wrong. You're going back to work to make a living to support your family. Um, but there is there is an absolute epidemic of guilt. And what I found in talking to all of these women is that it meant completely different things to different people. And yet it was this reflexive thing that they said automatically, oh, I felt so guilty. Well, tell me why you felt guilty. What kind of guilt did you feel? Well, I felt guilty that I was leaving my baby with, you know, a caregiver who I felt like couldn't love him as much as I could. Okay, that was one kind of guilt. But then other people would say to me, I felt guilty because I was back at work and I loved it. I loved not having, you know, a baby on my body and having adult conversations and being able to drink a cup of coffee. That was great. And so it became this almost like a tick, just that people would excuse whatever whatever feeling they're actually having and calling it guilt. And I realized guilt is just this common denominator. And you never, ever hear anyone talk about daddy guilt. And I would say I would welcome that conversation, except I wouldn't. We should not feel guilty, <laughs> right. you know. We for, don't need more guilt. Uh, right. We shouldn't feel guilty for a situation that is out of our hands and beyond our control. And I think that, you know, women have to ad hoc negotiate every bit of this for themselves. Even if you do have FMLA, you have to figure out how can you afford to take it or can you add some vacation time or what is going to work for you and your family. And then once you're back, you're having to negotiate every bit of flexibility that you might need in order to pick up your child from the daycare that's not even as good as you were hoping to send him to. This shouldn't have to be. In other countries in the world, there, there are just supports set up that don't put you in a tight spot to begin with. So you... uh discuss that a lot of times working mothers really have to do a lot of negotiation for themselves. But what are some ways that workplaces can do a better job of supporting moms in the fifth trimester and beyond? Sure. I mean, it starts on paper with policies, right? But we have also seen that that doesn't always work. Sometimes in the most competitive industries and companies, you know, people come back after their delightful six months of paid parental leave and their team has totally changed because it's a really fast-paced industry. That's tough. So you need something up, set up on the other side to support the reentry, first of all. But a lot of it is actually team-based. And I heard this from, you know, people working in uh, – a woman working on a, on a chicken farm was talking about how people covered for her while she could pump for um, her baby who was in the hospital at the time. Like, there's just a lot of um, – There's a lot you can do with the people who are sitting right next to you or standing right next to you to make things better. So even in places that have really great policies on paper, if there isn't good leadership within your own small little team structure, there's going to be a problem. Um, So it starts with the leadership. It starts with, you know, it starts with people actually taking and enjoying all the benefits that they have. But then it takes it starts by having conversations. They can't know if someone is your supervisor and has not had a child. It might not occur to that person that a 430 meeting that starts 15 minutes late is going to be a problem for you. So you and I don't mean to blame the victim, but you have to be open about the things that are challenges in order for them to be tended to. And that's why if we all come back and and just just go one degree beyond where we're comfortable in terms of, you know, exposing our parenthood in the workplace. If we do it together collectively, it will make a difference. One problem that I know a lot of people, especially mothers, face when they come back to work after having a kid um, is a supervisor or coworkers who think this person is not going to be able to pull their weight. Yeah. This person has other priorities that are going to compete with their ability mm-hmm. to do, do the job properly. What could you do if you're returning to work and you worry that you're in that situation? So, again, I'm going to put it right back on the parent. And I hope that this comes through in the research and the talking and and, and the writing that I've done. But you need to internalize the parts of yourself that have actually become a 
better worker by becoming a parent. And this isn't to say that people who aren't parents aren't fantastic workers. Obviously, they are. And in a lot of cases, they covered for you and be grateful for them and support whatever it is in their personal life that matters to them. But when you've been away, if you have actually had time at home with your baby, you have been you have been bossed by the biggest drill sergeant in the world. You've learned how to pivot. You've learned how to prioritize your time. You've learned how to really compress, you know, this is sort of pivoting, but compress the transitions between one task and another. Um, mothers are incredibly, incredibly efficient. You've also learned how to say no to things that don't matter in a way that is ultimately better for your company. You're not going to waste time. You've also learned that when when you say yes, this I heard again and again, when women raise their hand for something in this moment in their lives, it's really hard to do to say, I'm going to go for that promotion or I'm going to I'm going to take that call that's at a bad time or I'm, I'm going to you know try to woo this new client. If you're raising your hand to say yes to something, you have done the math in your head. You've figured out what the compromise is that you're going to be making in order to do that. So once you say yes, you mean it. That's a firm, meaningful yes. And if you can internalize some of those good qualities that you come back to work with, and this is to say nothing of nurturing and compassion and mentorship and all of these other kind of wonderful things that you come back with, those are those are things you can put numbers to. You can show their efficacy. Lauren Smith-Brody, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Lauren Smith-Brody is the author, again, of The Fifth Trimester, The Working Mom's Guide to Style, Sanity, and Big Success After Baby. She'll be back in our Slate Plus segment to share a crippling fail. Okay, we have now a question from a listener. This question comes from Trinity. Hi, Rebecca, Carvel, and Gabe. First, I love the show because even though your children are much older than mine is, I find everything relevant and or interesting and file it away for when my son is older. Your recent show where you interviewed Alyssa Strauss inspired me to write to you. I am 35 years old and had a very difficult time getting pregnant and a rough pregnancy and labor. It took four years, a couple different doctors, and several miscarriages before we were blessed with a healthy baby boy who is now six months old. We just received our bill from the embryo storage company, which prompted a conversation with my husband as to whether or not we want to have more kids. My husband said he doesn't want another because kids are, quote, a lot of fucking work but said that he would do whatever I wanted to do. I am writing to you for advice because I don't know what I want to do. On the one hand, I love our son and think it would be amazing to have another little person to love this much. On the other, I dread having to go through the entire process again. I hated being pregnant and it hated me. Ideally, I would wait a few years for the trauma to fade and for us to save up since the IVF is no longer covered under my insurance. But since I'm 35 and my husband is 40, we are on the clock. I also don't want a potential second child to come between my husband and I because I love him and honestly don't think I could function in the world without him. He's a great dad and a great partner, and we've split household chores and child care equitably. I'd like your input on what you would do and also how you would manage your relationship with your partner. Really, I think that listening to you all talk it out might help me understand my own feelings better. So the first thing I want to say is that I definitely relate to this question. Um, There's a couple things at play, and I think – the first thing that really comes to my mind is there's a question about having more children and there's a question about embryo storage, which are two kind of totally different things. Um, But the thing that I I really relate to in this is like I had like a really miserable pregnancy and I basically hated every second of it. And there was a lot, there's a number of things in my son's first year of life that I found sort of basically traumatic, like he was born with some problems with his kidneys and he had two surgeries before he was one. So there's a lot about like the pregnancy and early stage of being a parent that I really don't want to do again. And so for me, as having a two-year-old, like that is those past experiences do inform whether or not you want to have more children. And I think a lot of times women are sort of go through sometimes really, really difficult experiences. And, you know, at the end, you get to this place where, oh, but I have this wonderful baby and, you know, I'm so happy and it's he's the love of my life. And, you know, that's great. But at the same time, I think people don't really talk about the idea of needing to process difficult experiences and trauma as part of the process of deciding whether or not to have more children. I think it's really often swept under the under the rug and people talk about expense or people talk about the age difference between the kids or they talk about if you have enough space in your house. But I think that for a lot of women, especially women who've dealt with really painful issues with miscarriage and infertility, the idea of doing that all over again, there's a lot to sort of unpack emotionally. 
That's really interesting. I it makes me completely reconsider what I was going to say because you know obviously it's easy for me as the guy who doesn't have to carry the children to term and then give birth to them to say well okay there's a limited period of less than a year when it's extremely uncomfortable but then afterwards there's a child for a whole your whole life then you're creating a whole new person and so you know the one claim should be small compared to the other claim. Um, but what you're suggesting is that obviously it doesn't look that way to a woman who has suffered through a difficult pregnancy and, and other difficulties. The, the other thing I would just throw in there is that the fact, um, Trinity, that your child is only six months old, I think is honestly way too early to try and to, to make a decision about this. I mean, I think where you will be physically and emotionally um, Six months from now, a year from now could have a really big impact. And the same for your husband, like having a six month old, as he says, is a lot of fucking work. And I think, you know, not putting pressure on yourself to rush this decision. I know that you're 35 and you don't have 10 years to figure this out. Maybe you don't have five years to figure this out. But you you definitely you have a year, you have a two years. And I, I think that that's not to make, you know, worry too much that if you haven't completely gotten on the same page about this, that this is going to, you know, be a problem going forward. Yeah, I mean, that's that second thing is sort of what I was leaning towards, too. Also, the word trauma did come up for me, too, because I especially now that we're, you know, after the guests we had talking about early parents going back to work, I was reminded in a way that I've sort of forgotten about how traumatic it was to have to babies and then toddlers in our family, the four of us trying to make it in those early years. It, it just And everything went relatively smoothly. Both kids did need surgery at a certain point. But, um, and that was a thing. But I mean, even the normal stuff, the potty training, the sleep training, the work, the money, the it was rough. And um, when, and, and the pregnancies all went relatively smoothly in terms of comparing it to what Trinity has talked about, it does feel to me like there's a lot on the table to process here. Um, and I also feel that six months is very early to make this, to feel like you have to make this decision. And I understand that part of it is because it did take, there were difficulties last time around. And so it's not like the first time you do the procedure, all of a sudden you're good to go. But at the same time, so many things change so much when you have a baby. That first year is an entire world of new information. And I think that, um, you know, one of the things I always say is if you don't know the answer to the question, it's because you don't have enough information and um, you need more information. And time is the great giver of information. And I know you don't feel like you have a lot of time, but I would agree that there is some time and I would try as hard as I could to take some of that time and let more things be revealed. Another thing I, I would add is is I think about this for myself about, uh, and my husband and I talk about the idea of having a second child, that I have to remind myself is, and I don't know your, you know, your specific fertility history, but because you've had difficulties in the past, saying you're going to have another child does not necessarily sign you up for four more years of of struggle or X many number of miscarriages. Like every pregnancy and experience is unique. And so um, I think it's you're very right to have some reticence, but we can't always let, you know, things that were difficult in the past, like totally determine how we feel about, you know, making decisions going forward. Yeah, that's interesting. The, the the other thing that occurs to me is one of the things that everybody has to think about when they have a second child is how is it going to affect the first child, right? No, and and no older sibling is like totally chill about having a younger sibling, and and yet in the end we give them younger siblings anyway, and that's fine, and in the end it enriches their life and and whatever. At the same time, if you're if you're coming off of this extremely difficult and extended experience of conceiving and then being pregnant and then uh, having a baby, uh, and you're still in the middle of that, and you you are go you, you and then you begin that again and you go through whatever degree of difficulty comes up the second time around, um, are, are how what's that going to be like for the now six month old baby? Um, is are you maybe asking that baby uh, to make more of a sacrifice than just like the ordinary loss of parental attention that that comes any time a kid gets a new sibling, right? When when Leo, my second child, was born, then 
obviously, like you go through some stuff with the older kid and you feel a little bit bad about what you're doing to her. And then in the end, it all sort of works out that now she has a little playmate and you hope that it's all fair and, and you hope that it's all worth it. But um, it seems like if you if you're in a really emotionally tough circumstance and then you're making this very big second ask of yourself and your husband um it's possible that that would be too much to ask that that would be more than you should ask of yourselves at a time when you're already taking care of an infant um and i just think that's something to consider okay i hope that's helpful uh thanks for the question trinity and um good luck let us know what happens this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Time now for us to recommend things to you. That's right. It's time for recommendations. Catherine, what are you going to recommend? I would like to recommend dinner parties as a way to entertain and have a good adult social life when you have a tiny, a tiny, small, medium-sized children. So um, there have been uh, a bunch of stories in the New York Times Magazine and and New York Magazine about like throwing dinner parties and all these cool recipes. But I would like to offer some recommendations on how to actually throw a dinner party when you are a busy parent and to really make it work. So um, basically, uh, we live in Brooklyn. Going out to dinner is like a big part of New York social life. We can't do that anymore because our son is just at a terrible age for that. So we've started inviting people over. Um, and what we do is we say we're going to have a dinner party on Saturday and we invite, you know, two or three couples, families. If someone can't make it, we don't like we don't like pick the group and say, oh, let's find a time for this really specific group. We're like, we're having people over Saturday. Can you come? Nope. OK, moving on to the next people. Um, so you decide you pick a date. You then decide you decide to make something that's really not too complicated. When I was a childless person, I would make like elaborate paellas and like multi-course meals or whatever. Now I pick one dish that works well for the group. Uh, I ask one person to bring a salad, one person to bring a dessert. You start at 530. You have some butter noodles ready for the kids. And then you're usually able to have some fun, enjoyable adult conversation. Um, Let the kids play together, you know, at some point break out the iPad so they're quiet Um, and I think that this is a really underrated way to socialize. And I also recommend another part of this in terms of, uh, making it a success is invite at least one person or couple that does not have kids. That way you don't get, just get bogged down and talking about like daycare arrangements and boring and like things that can get boring. Like you have the non-kid couple who can interject like their interesting thoughts about arts, culture and politics. So you, you keep the conversation more geared towards adults. Uh, you start the dinner early. Everybody's, you know, getting ready to go about 8, 830. You didn't cook too much so you don't have too many dishes you go to bed at the regular time and that's your social life that sounds like a great social life. <laughs> yeah it's good that's a great rec- and it wasn't only just the recommendation but the hows of it because yeah. how do you do that it's all in the execution that's really that's it's right. all in the execution all of us who've tried to do this this is good good stuff um, um, just to throw, I will throw uh, uh, for the mom and dad are fighting Facebook page. I will put some of my favorite recipes that are easy to make for this situation on the Facebook page, so you too you can have a dinner party under an hour of cooking. Nice, love it. My recommendation is another one from the Wayback Machine, which I've been going to more frequently in the recent weeks. But I'm returning to the book. If you give a mouse a cookie. 
by Lauren Numeroff. Sweet one. Illustrated by Felicia Bond. And and we um that was our I just remembered this morning randomly when I was thinking of recommendations, uh, that that was our favorite book for a good year. And there's a whole bunch in the series. There's if you give a mouse a cookie and if you give a mouse a muffin and if you give a moose a so on and so forth. Um and there are these wonderful little board books that begin with a very simple premise that if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want some milk. And then if you give him some milk, he's going to want, you know, and then it's like one thing leads to another, to another, to another. And pretty soon you're giving the mouse all this stuff. And um, I loved, we loved the story. We thought it was funny, beautifully illustrated, very simple sentences and just had a nice kind of like logical arc that the kids really seemed to enjoy. Then the dark side, when I was researching it, I discovered that apparently some people have tried to take this as um, a, a coded political message against the welfare state. Oh, uh, and there was even a Washington Post article about that at some point. And so I just want to go on record and say that the there's a this book is about the joy of giving things cookies and milk and naps and blankets to people that you love. It's not about people trying to take from you. Like and if, if you, you read give this, a mouse just... a cookie, then he'll lose his work ethic and exactly. will no longer. <laughs> and then he'll take from the state forever. Oh and he'll be paying his salary. Yeah, I mean that really is a, a, a real, real Washington Post article was written about that. So I just want to say that if you read this and you see that, you, I'm praying for you. I'm going to cook up a counter up. theory, which is that <laughs> it, it, it's actually about if you give a mouse a cookie then the mouse um, will hoard all of the cookies and eventually take over the international cookie <laughs> trade and the monetary <laughs> system and ultimately the media. And who are all these mice among us anyway? Uh, I see what you're doing. I, yeah, it's the protocols of the elders of rodents is oh, what I'm God. doing there. Um, so yeah. give him a, if you give a mouse a cookie, not a, a coded political, political message against the welfare state. I have a recommendation that, as far as I know, has never been accused of being anti-Semitic propaganda, uh, and that is Shrinky Dinks. Shrinky Dinks mm. are uh, sheets of plastic with drawings on them that your child can color in, cut out, stick in the oven, and it gets smaller and thicker. You wouldn't think that was very impressive unless you were between two and five, in which case you would definitely think it was really impressive. It's like the kid has made something that has changed state in a really powerful and amazing way. I remember doing them when I was a kid and then forgetting about them for like three decades and then busting them out again. And wow, it got smaller and thicker. So uh, if you are looking for a way to entertain children for an hour on a wintry afternoon, Shrinky Dinks. Thank you. I'm definitely going to get some of those. And that's our show. Uh, if you have a question that you would like us to tackle, give us a call at 424-255-7833. You can tell us what you thought of this episode or any of our other episodes or just of us personally at facebook.com slash fighting. This show was produced by Benjamin Frisch. For Carvel Wallace and Catherine Goldstein, I'm Gabriel Roth. Rebecca Lavoie will be back with us next week, and we will see you then. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.